Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. Well, I'm glad that you're here. Before I get into it, I just have to say, if you guys could give, help give me, uh, help me out and give my friends a warm welcome. Uh, Will and Jocelyn are here this morning, and uh, we go back several, several years, uh, conferences and classes and uh, events and all sorts of stuff, um, and it is just awesome to see. Actually, I can't even see you because this light's right here, but I know you're there, uh, but I'm so glad that you guys are here, and uh, thank you guys for coming out. I know that, you know, the, the flu is going around, and, and I got it a couple of weeks ago. Well, not the flu. I got strep throat, and so I'm still a little bit recovering from that, um, but thank you guys for coming. There was this, uh, there was these two young brothers, and uh, they were getting ready to hop into their bunk beds, uh, but before that, they say their nightly prayers, and uh, for whatever reason, the younger brother uh, started to pray, and he started to almost yell his prayer, like he was screaming at the top of his voice, and he was like, dear God, please get me that red bicycle, God. You know, the red bicycle that's down at the corner store, Lord. You know, God, the one that's there in the window. Please get me that for Christmas, God. And the older brother said, what are you doing? God's not deaf. And the younger brother said, no, but grandma is. <laughs> It's funny uh, how sometimes we feel like we have to communicate in order to sort of get what we want. And I think that we are in the middle of this Advent series, and really God put it on uh, Pastor Phil's heart to this Christmas season, look at the genealogy of Jesus. And I know everybody got excited for that. I was hoping for a lot of amens, and I knew somebody was about to run around the building, but uh, because we all get excited for the genealogy parts of the scripture, right? Where we see names that we can't pronounce, and, and people begat this person, and that person begat another person, and we don't even know what begat means. And, and so we're like, there's just a long list of names, and who cares? But the reality is, is that each one of those names represents a person that paved the way for Christmas, that paved the way for the babe in the manger, that, that paved the way for Christ to come. And each one of those names are significant. And really what we want you to be able to do is next time when you are doing your Bible study, as I know all of you guys are good students of the word and you're in your times of devotion, that when you get to these long lists of names, maybe take some time to look at them because we'd love for you to walk away really with kind of three things when we talk about the genealogy. First, we want you to know that what the genealogies do for us is it grounds our faith in history. It grounds our faith in world history, that the names, the places, the particulars, uh, that they point to the fact that Jesus is not just some sort of mystical legend, right? But Matthew is careful to show us how Christ is grounded in human history. That's the first thing. The second thing is we really want you to see how beauty comes from brokenness. When you really take time to not just sort of gloss over the names, but really inspect them, you begin to see that Matthew didn't just 
put in all of the people that seem to be good, right? Uh, he, he didn't just put the people that uh, maybe were he was most proud of, but he even put people in the genealogy that we would be embarrassed about, people that made the, the lineage of Jesus look bad. And the Bible doesn't try to cover up imperfections. Uh, and it's really shocking because nobody would have expected for the sinless son of God to really come from a defiled dynasty, but he does. And when you look, you don't see perfect people with perfect past, but you see people from the abusers to the abused. And what it shows is that there really is no sin so gross that grace cannot cover it. And number three, finally, we want you to walk away knowing that God is trustworthy. That when you see these names in these genealogies, that each name that is recorded is God's faithfulness to his word. That God finishes what he starts and that God always keeps his promises. That he is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him. So those are kind of the three takeaways that we really want you to get from these genealogies. Now, what we're doing is we are not going to cover every single name, but we are pulling out some names from this genealogy that we are going to discuss during this Advent series. And in Matthew 1.1, it starts off by saying this, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I pray today, Lord God, that uh, we will be hearers of your word, that we will be doers of your word, and that, Heavenly Father, from this, you will be glorified and we will be molded and shaped more and more into your image as we are disciples of you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So this morning, we're looking at David. We're looking at David. Now, all through the songs about Christmas, all through the stories about the birth of Jesus, all of those birth narratives, right? The, the name of David comes up time and time again, right? Or even the title throughout all of the narratives of Christmas, you see the son of David, son of David, son of David, Jesus being called this, right? Um, uh, or, or even, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, and so what the gospel writers are telling us, what they're trying to communicate is that unless you understand David, then you won't understand Jesus. If you don't understand David, then you won't understand Christmas. That, that's what the authors of the gospel are saying. That, that unless you understand who David is, then you won't understand who Jesus is. Now that's pretty strong and especially if you want to understand what David is about in this particular incident that we are going to read. Now, where we're going to read today actually is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what's happened really is uh, David has uh, become king and God has given him favor and he has began to be victorious over enemies that have been attacking them for centuries. 
And finally, David is establishing uh, some sort of peace. Finally, some things are beginning to take shape. And finally, God's people are beginning to have rest from their enemies. And so that's what's happening. And, and because David is flourishing, he looks around his palace and he sees that he is in this beautiful palace. He's looking at his cedar panels, the Bible says, and he's saying, look at what I'm living in. And then he compares that to where the ark is. And he sees that the ark of the covenant is still in the tent, is still in the tabernacle. And this is astonishing because by now the tabernacle is like, you know, hundreds of years old. And I'm sure they're constantly having to repair it. It's constantly going under some sort of repair. It's old. It's uh, faded. And David is looking at that. And David says, well, that's not right. That can't be right. Look at, look at how blessed I am. This can't happen. And so he says, listen, I want to build a house for God. And so, he, and so he, he makes this statement. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan the prophet hears this and Nathan says, yeah, that's great. Love that. Great idea. Go for it. You're rich. You have the money. Sounds awesome. We want that for God. Let's do it. And he thumbs up it, right? He gives it the prophet seal of approval. But then something interesting happened that night. And this is really where the reading begins, starting in verse four. It says this, but that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, the prophet, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought you and the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet, no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to the Israelite tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of the heaven's armies has declared. I took you, David, from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name famous, as famous as anyone who's ever lived on the earth and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they have done in the past. Starting from that time that I appointed the judges to rule over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, as if that's not enough, right guys? Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up another of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, which you all know that David's son Solomon does that, right? And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do so. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secured forever. That's like the second time he's made that statement. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything 
that the Lord had shown him in the vision. This morning, I really want to talk to you about three things, the misplaced promise, the counter promise, and our promise, okay? Misplaced promise, the counter promise, and our promise. So first, the misplaced promise. So this is crazy. Did you catch what happened? So David, like I said, is living in this grand palace and it's beautiful, it's awesome. And he's looking at the tent and he's looking at where the presence of God is dwelling. And he says, oh, that's just not right. And he says, well, I'm gonna go and I'm, I wanna build this house for him. I wanna build this temple. But Nathan comes back and says, actually, uh, no, God doesn't want you to. And there's really two reasons why that the text shows us. The first is what theologians called the incarnational principle. The incarnational principle. And you see that in verses six and seven, right? Where God says, listen, all these years, did I have anybody ask, did I tell anybody to build me a temple? Did I tell anybody to build me a house? No, no, I've wandered. I've wandered. If my people are poor, I'm gonna be poor with them. If they're gonna struggle, I'm gonna struggle with them. If they're going to be broken, I'm going to be broken with them. If they're going to wander and not have a permanent home, I'm going to wander and I'm not going to have a permanent home. That's incarnational, you see, incarnate. And so even though, yes, David began to establish peace and prosperity and national security, it still wasn't there for all of God's people, for most of the people. And so God says, no, I'm not ready for you to build a house yet. So that's the first reason. The second reason is what theologians call the grace principle. The grace principle, now this is pretty interesting. And you see it in verse 8 where God says to David, and he says this pretty, very, uh, pretty vividly. He says, listen, I'm the one that took you. You were a shepherd. You were a you know, snot-nosed little kid running around, running, you know, grabbing and, and taking care of sheep and running after sheep and chasing you. And I took you, you see, and I established you. And now I made you to where you are king. You're leading men and women and you're leading this nation. And it's all because of me. Not because you did something for me, David. Not because you did something for me. Let's not get this twisted. But, but it's because of the grace I've given you. It's by sheer grace you have power. It's by sheer grace you have success. It's by sheer grace that, 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 that you are where you are. You're not going to build me a house. No, I'm going to build you a house. You see, David had a misplaced promise. Well, what's that about? See, the reason this principle is significant and it's extremely significant is because in ancient times, and we know from historical artifacts and all sorts of other things that what would happen is different leaders and kings would go and, and uh, when they started to be uh, successful or they were uh, built up some sort of military success, what they would do then is they would then build a temple after a god. And they would build this temple and uh, what they would do is, is because they built this temple, then God would then bless them. Right? And we see this through all sorts of different examples. And, and, and so a lot of times what will happen is the priests of those gods would come together and they would tell the Pharaoh or they would tell the king or whoever, and they would say, hey, listen, because you built this temple for this God, then this God will now bless you. And David is about to do the same thing, right? And then what does God do? What does God say? It's radical. God says, no, no. You're not going to do what every other religion does. Do, do you see what, what God is doing? 
God is saying that the way that we here in the Bay Area think is wrong. We here in the Bay Area think that all religions are the same. That basically they're all the same. They're basically all leading to the same place, the same points, the same morality. It's all one mountain, different paths, all going up. And God is saying, no, I'm a totally different mountain range. That's not how it's going to be. I, 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 the, the way that this works is completely different. See, every other religion, they, they work on a principle that if you do something for God, then God will do something for you. If you do something for God, now God owes you, right? And this is utterly different. God is saying, listen, I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I'm going to do it for you. Theologian and scholar Eugene Peterson says this. Do you, know what you, do you know what I think? I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David, riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of all Israel. He was heavy with success and he began to think he could do God a favor. But if, God, if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. If any of us develop an, ad- an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own action and performance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. You see that? So, for the incarnational principle and for the grace principle, God says, no, 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 no. you're not going to build me a temple. You're not going to build me a house, right? God says, because I'm different than those other gods. Don't treat me the same way that you treat other things. Don't do that. I am completely different. I am a God of grace. And naturally the question is, well, how can that possibly be? I mean, how can you, God, lavish grace on people regardless of their sin? Because remember, David was not perfect. A murderer, an adulterer. If I were to do the things that David did, each and every one of you, even myself, would count me out. Forget it. Done. Right? And yet, God lavishes grace. How can that be possible? Well... The answer lies in the counterpromise. Point two, the counterpromise. You see, David promised God, and God says, nope, I'm going to give you a counterpromise. And so God says, I'm going to build you a house. Now, when David is talking about building a house for God, a temple for God, he's talking about a physical house, a physical temple, right? But when God is talking to David about building a house, God is talking about a dynasty, you see. A dynasty. He says, I promise to make your descendants a dynasty of kingship. And he says, and I will graciously, and he says, I will unconditionally commit myself to them, regardless of their merit, regardless of their pedigree. I will show graciously and unconditionally commit myself to them that neither death, nor sin, nor even time will be able to break my commitment. We see that in the verses. Look at verse 12 and verse 13, right? Death won't stop my commitment to your descendants. He says, even when you die, that doesn't matter. I'm still gonna be committed. I'm gonna raise up somebody else. Death isn't gonna do it. 
And then in verse 14 and 15, he talks about sin. He said, sin's not going to do it. He said, some of your descendants are going to be extremely evil. They're going to be full of sin. They're going to commit all kinds of iniquities. And, and, and in spite of all of that, I will stay committed. Your descendants, they're not going to stay committed to me, but I will stay committed to them. That's what he says, right? Sin can't do it. Death won't be able to do it. And even time cannot condition it. Look in verse 16, and this is sort of the key passage, the key verse in this whole passage. And he says, you and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, right? You and your kingdom. Now, is this just hyperbole, right? Is, just, is this just a rhetorical flourishing? No, right? No. Now, listen, as people are kind of living through this, I'm sure that they probably wondered, oh, maybe this is the king that's going to live forever as, as one king came and another king left and another king came and another king. I'm sure they're like, oh, maybe you'll be the king. And then at some point they're like, well, the, maybe it's just, you know, hyperbole. Maybe God was just exaggerating a little bit here. Because, but, but, but God says this twice to make sure. He says it twice to make sure that everybody knows that this isn't hyperbole. This isn't exaggeration. This isn't just God being dramatic or being extra, right? No. He says, listen, that what I'm trying to tell you is that there will not just be a king. Listen, David, there just won't be a king, but from your descendants will come the king. He, he's saying there just won't be a kingdom, but from your descendants, there will be the kingdom. Oh, there's a difference because that answers all of the riddles, right? It, it's what draws it all together. The baby born in a manger is not just a savior, but a king, a king, a Davidic king, a Davidic child. And this child literally, watch this, overcame death and sin and time. Do you see that? He triumphants over all of that, you see. When, when, when he rose up from the grave, he triumphed over death. When he was on the cross, he overcame sin. And because he's not just the son of David, but because he is the son of God, he goes beyond time, you see. You say, oh, well, you know, but the temple and, and, and the tent and, and the Ark of the Covenant and, and maybe that's just symbolic. You know, God is just symbolically suffering with people and God is just symbolically, you know, wandering and God is just symbolically being poor. But see, God can't make these promises unless at some point it literally happens. And it does. It does. It does, you see. Jesus Christ left his palace and became a baby born in a manger. Do you see that? It, it, it's a place where, where scripture begins to say that, listen, it wasn't just uh, metaphorically wandering around. But, but the gospel lets us know that Jesus Christ was born and then that foxes didn't have, that foxes have places to live and birds have places to nest, but the Son of Man had no place to rest his head. Do you see that? He says, my counterpromise to you is that I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna build your house. I'm gonna show you grace 
And you are not going to have to earn it. You're not going to have to earn it. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means this. Look, I know that what we're talking about is something that happened thousands of years ago. I know that this is something that is far distant from us. I know that this is something that we feel often far removed from. And you might be saying, okay, that's great. I'm glad that those promises happened. That, that's wonderful. But what does that actually mean for me? Well, what it means for us is this, is that it's not just a misplaced promise and there's not just a counter promise, but there's our promise. It was really interesting because um, when my grandparents passed away, we were notified that there is an inheritance that my sister and I uh, we're going to be able to get. And uh, what's fascinating about this inheritance is that it actually comes from my great, great, great grandfather. And what my great, great, great grandfather did was he actually spelled out his will in such a way where he said, this portion is going to go to my children. This portion is going to go to my grandchildren. This to my great-grandchildren this to my great-great-grandchildren, and his last was his great-great-great-grandchildren, which was my sister and I. Isn't that interesting? How he thought generationally, you see. And you need to know that when we're talking about genealogies and lineages and promises, that God is speaking and thinking generationally. That it's, that, that it's not just for them back then, but it's for us today. Well, what does that mean practically? What does that mean practically that Jesus is not just a savior, but that he's a king? What difference does it make, right? Can he just be savior? Well, there's a big difference because he's not just savior, but he's king. Let me just give you a few. First of all, the kingship of Jesus means that there's hope for the world. What do we mean by that? Well, if Jesus was simply a savior, then Christianity would only be about individualism, right? In other words, if, if Jesus Christ was just a savior, then and it was just about us being forgiven individually, and it would just be about our individual souls leaving this world, leaving this universe, and going someplace with him. If that's all it was about, then that would be a very individualistic type of belief system. But because Jesus Christ is king, what that means is that there is a kingdom. And because there's a kingdom, there is something corporate about our belief system. Sorry, my mic is, I don't know what's going on here. But do you get what I'm saying? There's something corporate about our belief system. In other words, our belief system isn't, okay, you as an individual are going to get saved and then your soul is going to leave this world and go into heaven somewhere over there. That's actually not what the Bible says at all. What the Bible says is that his kingdom is going to come into this material world and is going to rejuvenate this universe. Do, do you see that? This universe, this earth, these mountains, these rivers, these oceans, these rocks, these sands, all of this is going to be recreated for his kingdom. And so it's not just, I'm a sinner and I receive Christ. God forgives me and I go to heaven. But it's something corporate. It's something familial, you see. It's something about us 
being together. And this is why we do things for the community. Because, it, because it's pointing to the reality of corporate renewal. This is why we have rehab houses. This is why we have doctors and, and medicine and hospitals. And th this is why we mend bodies, right? Because Jesus isn't just a savior, but he's a king that reigns over a kingdom. And what do great kings do? Well, they give rest to their people. They bring justice. They bring peace. They bring prosperity. You see? Jesus is king. And so our salvation is not just individualistic, it's also corporate. You know what's interesting about what Jesus does is how he transforms our understanding of holiness. This is what's interesting. Jesus said, a new command I give you to love God and to love others. Remember that? Remember that? Well, in order to understand that, when he says a new command I give you, well, we have to ask, well, what was the old command? Right? What was the old command? Well, when you look at the Old Testament, the old command, there was tons of them, right? Because there weren't just the commands that God gave, but then these religious rulers came around and said, well, how, what commands are we going to make and put in place to make sure those commands are kept? And so they made over 600 commands. Some of them are like crazy. Like on the Sabbath, you can only pick up so many sticks of firewood before it's considered a sin, right? And, and, uh, and, but if you want to stay holy, this is what you do. If you want to stay holy, this is how you live. If, this is, if you want to stay holy, you don't pick up five pieces. You only pick up four. If you want to stay holy, you, you can't walk, you know, more than 300 steps on the Sabbath or whatever the rule was, right? That's, that's holiness. When the holiness movement hit uh, America and it swept through, which I am a byproduct of because growing up, uh, I actually went to two different churches, one on my mom's side and one on my dad's side. And the one on my mom's side is the Holiness Pentecostal Church. And in the Holiness Pentecostal Church, and don't get me wrong, they're, 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 it's great. It's wonderful. They don't know how to play a slow song in their life if it depended on it. You know what I mean? I mean, everything's fast. Uh, you know, fire happens on the keyboard and you just start running and jumping and, and bobby pins start going out and it's like a machine gun, da, 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 you know, and, and you're rolling and you're running and, and all sorts of stuff is happening. It was an awesome experience. But, but in, in that church, holiness was men had to wear long pants and, and long sleeve shirts and couldn't have facial hair and otherwise you weren't holy. Holiness was you couldn't watch television. You didn't go to baseball games. Otherwise you're not being holy. For women, you had to wear dresses and your hair had to be up, no makeup, no jewelry, otherwise you weren't holy. You know, everything was a sin. Wearing, I mean, you know, wearing a certain color of clothing was a sin. Smiling was a sin. Laughing was a sin. Felt like breathing was a sin. You had to be holy, right? I remember when we went to the beach with the church. And you have to understand, my great-grandma came to pick me up and I had my beach clothes on. And she says, what are you doing? I said, we're going to the beach, I thought you said. You better go in there and put that suit on. And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? And we went to the beach, and you know what? It didn't make me holy. It didn't. It just made me hot. I was hot the whole time. The whole time. But see, this is what happens is holiness becomes individualistic. And what Jesus does is Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me tell you about holiness. There's a new command I give you. Love God and love others. Do, do you see what he did? He said holiness has more to do with how you love God and how you love others. How you want to show holiness is how you love others. Do, do you see that? So, so Jesus being king has huge ramifications because it's a corporate thing. Amen. Secondly, Jesus being king means service, right? The incarnation of Christmas means the one who was rich became poor. Right. 
right? The one who didn't just live in a house, but lived in heaven. Think about that. He, he, he left the royalty and, and passed the sapphire seals and, and everything that was there. And, and he came and was wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a feeding trough. Think about this. J.I. Packer says something really interesting about it, and I don't have it on the screen, but listen carefully to what he says. He talks about how we talk about the Christmas spirit, Right? And usually when we say the Christmas spirit, we're talking about some sort of sentimental feeling, right? Family at the holidays, you know, during the holidays or the smell of gingerbread or drinking, you know, red cups from Starbucks or whatever, right? The Christmas spirit. And what J.I. Packer says is actually that's not the Christmas spirit. At least that's not the Christmas spirit for Christians. Because for Christians, the Christmas spirit is to be like their king. In other words, to, to, to spend and be spent on others, you see? To spend yourself on others, to give your time, your talents, your treasures, to care for the poor and the needy, to have concern for others, to look at the needs of your community and meet them. That is the Christmas spirit, to serve, you see. That's different than if Jesus was just a savior, which he is, but he's also a king. Thirdly, obedience. To have a king means there has to be obedience, right? And what's interesting is people have said, oh, well, Pastor Roger, um, look, you know, uh, yeah, I've given Christianity a shot and it didn't work. Right? Have you ever heard that? You know, I tried Christianity out, you know? And many people will do that. That, you know, it'll be like you go to look for an outfit and we want Christianity to be like the outfit. We want it to hide our flaws and, and, and bring out, you know, the good parts of us. And, 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 you know, if it doesn't work out, then we, we change that outfit. We find something else. We, we, we try to treat Christianity like we're just adding Jesus to our portfolio to make our lives look better and, and to sort of, well, if he helps me out, if it makes me a better husband, if he makes me a better wife, if it makes me a better coworker, if it brings me happiness, and, and you know what I'm saying? This is what we do. Right? We, but, but you didn't really obey. You say, well, I tried Christianity out, but, but, but you didn't really obey because what, what that means is that there was some other non-negotiable in your life that you weren't willing to lay down before the king. When you say, I tried Christianity, it didn't work, then there's some, maybe it was your happiness. Maybe your happiness was the non-negotiable. Maybe it was health, your health. Maybe it was your wealth. Maybe you wanted to be married. Maybe you don't want to be married, Right? Maybe you really want kids. Maybe you have kids and now you regret it. I don't know, right? But whatever it is, and you're saying, well, Christianity didn't give that to me. Well, that's because something else was your king and not Jesus. You see? You're serving, you're obeying to something else. You're chasing something other than Jesus Christ. Do you see that? You're still chasing the dream of, of well, let, let me just try to have a middle-class life and raise my kids up in, in, in a middle-class neighborhood. And, and you know, you're chasing something. And, and, and then you say, well, Christianity didn't work. What you're really saying is Christianity didn't give you what you wanted and you have a different king than Christ, you see. Which means you don't really trust. Take that from somebody who gets anxiety and worry and I'm constantly having to battle the fact that, man, I really don't trust the Lord and I need to trust him. 
Because if I have anxiety, if I have worry, the reason I have anxiety, the reason I have worry, the reason all of us have anxiety and worry and stress is because we want to be in control of the world. And we're not. And things happen, right? And we can't let go enough to just trust God. Wow, isn't that crazy? As we conclude this message, lastly, if Jesus Christ is king, it means joy. It means joy. Now, I know, when you think, you say, you know, Pastor Roger, um, I might have been following you up until that point. Because when I think of having a king over my life, that does not make me happy. That does not bring me, I'm not like, oh, great. That's what I want, a king. I want some monarch telling me what to do. And I'm just like, yes, Lord. Right? We don't. And of course we don't. American mythology is heavily bound up with the pilgrim fathers wanting religious freedom. So they move to the promised land in effect, right? And somehow in our Western world, we've gradually absorbed the notion that there is more wisdom if you have a lot of people voting. Somehow we got there. We said, we don't want a king. We don't want somebody telling us, one person telling us what to do. That's too much power. That's too much control. And so we say, no, we, it's better if we have thousands and thousands of people voting. And that's just far more better. Well, maybe, but you might just get more selfishness, right? Or maybe it's just the loudest voice. The squeakiest wheel gets the grease. Or maybe it's just the most influential lobbyist. That doesn't guarantee righteousness or integrity. And yet America is very suspicious of kings. In fact, the old theologian and professor D.A. Carson says this, every good king so often turns out to be bad king. If not, then their kids do. If not, then their grandkids do. No, no, we want some other means some way of turfing the blighters out. We don't want anybody to have too much power because tyranny rules otherwise. But suppose you could have, a, but suppose you could have God as king. Suppose that king knew everything. Suppose the king was perfectly just. Suppose every action the king took was right. Suppose the king could never be deceived. Suppose this king transformed men and women by his grace. Suppose the king established righteousness. Suppose the king was always good and always loving. Would you not want that king? Would you not want that king? In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the final, the final movie is called The Return of the King the return of the king. And really throughout the whole movie, it's really about people really wanting the right king to come, waiting for the rightful king to come and bring peace, bring justice, bring protection, right? And so you're fighting an evil king and trying to destroy that one because we really need the right king to come. And you know, we get swept away in movies like this, in books like this, and not just like Lord of the Rings, but all movies, all but Why? Why do we get swept away in that? Why, why is there something that draws us to that? Well, because there is a deep-seated hunger 
that maybe somehow these stories can be true. There's something in all of us that want these stories to be true, right? The movies and the the books, there's something, we, we, we get captivated by it because somehow we want it to be true. And you know what's crazy? Is if you are a Christian, it is. Would you stand to your feet? We're about to respond in worship. And here's the reality. Here's your reality. Is that there wasn't just a misplaced promise. And there wasn't just a counter promise for someone thousands of years ago. But there is a promise given to you today that you have right now. You have a king. You have a king. You have a king that is good. You have a perfectly good king, which means if you are weary and tired and burnt out, you have a king that can give you rest. If you're stressed and filled with anxiety, you have a king that can give you peace. If you're riddled with guilt and shame, you have a king that can give you grace. If you're grieving loss, wrestling with depression, shackled with unforgiveness, carrying bitterness or hurt or mistrust, you have a king that can heal hearts and transform lives. And what you need to know is this king never gives up. This king never clocks out. This king never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always there. He never waves the white flag of defeat. He never gets impatient and say, go away. He never says, I don't have time. He never says, no, I've given you enough grace. He's always forgiving. He's always loving. He's always chasing. He's always seeking. He's always calling. He's always embracing. He's always coming after you. You have a king. You see, that's the promise. You have a king, not just a savior, but a king that reigns and his kingdom we are a part of. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities Mercy Ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.